Luke chapter 14, uh, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 to start with. And uh, let's pray before we begin to read. Father, thank you for your uh, word to us this morning. Thank you, as ever, we thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, that as we hear your word, it speaks into our very souls. It doesn't just inform, uh, it transforms. Uh, So Holy Spirit, as we hear your words, as we think about them, uh, may our hearts and minds be attentive to you, for Jesus' sake. Amen. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. So uh, Jesus continuing his journey to Jerusalem. It's another Sabbath Uh, Jesus is, as we've seen before, um, frequently in trouble on the Sabbath because he doesn't keep the rules. Uh, He breaks the laws. He gets into trouble with the Pharisees and the experts in the law. Uh, Last week we were thinking about Pharisees who were friendly towards Jesus. Now we're back with uh, the usual bunch who are... Uh, don't like him, are trying to get rid of him, who are constantly looking for ways of pulling him down. He's been invited to a meal at the house of a prominent Pharisee. And the other guests are other Pharisees and experts in the law. And Jesus is being carefully watched. He is being scrutinised. They are looking for reasons to condemn him and criticise him. Uh, Uh, We've seen before about the rules and regulations that surrounded the Sabbath. Throwing a dinner party on the Sabbath is a challenge, was a challenge in itself. Uh, Because it's the Sabbath, there are so many things that you can't do that are classed as work, uh, cooking being one of them. So if you throw a dinner party on the Sabbath, you've got to think carefully about your menu because you've either got to have a cold buffet or if you want to serve hot food, you have got to cook it before the sun goes down on the Friday, before the Sabbath begins. And a challenge with cooking a dinner beforehand is you've got to cook it beforehand and then you've got to keep it warm. But you can only keep it warm in such a way that it doesn't carry on cooking. Because if it carries on cooking, you're breaking Sabbath law. So you can serve hot food on the Sabbath, but you've got to keep it warm at just the right temperature so it doesn't keep on cooking because if it does you're a lawbreaker so this um, prominent Pharisee I'm guessing he went with the cold buffet option (laughs) unless he was an extremely good cook not that he would have cooked it because it would be the the women who would have done it but that's you know that's the kind of the context of how zealous these guys are for laws and rules and regulations because that's the way you please God that's the way you hasten the coming of the Messiah. That's what the experts of the law, in the law are devoted to doing, is pleasing God by scrupulous obedience to law. And they don't like Jesus because he keeps breaking it. He, uh, Jesus, um, he knows this. He's been here before. So he just poses the question. He doesn't wait for them to come. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? The answer he knows they're going to give is No. You can't heal on the Sabbath because that's work. It's not that they don't like healing. 
It's that they like the laws. Remember um, a few weeks ago when we were another Sabbath controversy and the synagogue ruler said, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on one of those days, not on the Sabbath. It's not that they don't like God healing people, it's just you've got six days to do that, you can't heal on the Sabbath. And and then Jesus uh, heals the guy, sends him off and says, if one of you has a son, um, some manuscripts uh, have the translation donkey, Interesting that son and donkey seem to be interchangeable. There we go. Uh, if one of you has a son slash donkey or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, um, will you not immediately pull him out? And he just silences them because they, they, kind of, they can see that actually he's, he's got a good point. Now, when I was reflecting on this, I thought, well, if I'd been the Pharisee or the expert in the law, I would have come back and said, yeah, but if my son or ox falls into the well, if I don't get them out immediately... They're going to drown. So, so I need to do that. This guy with dropsy, he had dropsy yesterday. He's going to have drop. I had to Google that. It's, it's water, is it water retention? Yeah. yeah, it's water retention. Sometimes from a congenital heart defect. Is that right? I'm sorry, I'm just looking at the doctor for verification of what, of what dropsy is because I had to Google it. But it's kind of water retention. So, so it's going to be all right till tomorrow. So that would have been my, my kind of comeback would have been, well, I need to get my donkey out because it's going to drown. But this guy's going to have dropsy tomorrow, so what's your issue? The issue is the Sabbath, it's about giving life. That's the thing. We've seen it before. I'm not going to say too much about this because a few weeks ago I spent a long time on Sabbath. It's about stopping. It's about resting. It's about refreshing our souls. And how do we refresh our souls? By bringing them before God. So a Sabbath, it's not just a day off. It's about an intentional day where you let your soul be refreshed. So you do things on your Sabbath that are life-giving, that you love doing, that refresh your soul. It's about family. It's about worship. It's about stopping your usual routine. And after the last time I preached on this, we did have a kind of discussion about, well, what if you're, what if you're retired and every day looks the same? How do you stop your normal routine when your normal routine is seven days out of seven? Well, you just got to think a bit harder about it and think, well, what can I... So turn your phone off. Turn the telly off. Just find ways of making your Sabbath day distinctive. So Because it's all about stopping. It's about stopping. So find things that you can stop. But the Sabbath, you know, Jesus said, you know, Sabbath is given to us as a gift. Not meant to be hard work. It's meant to be a gift. That's all I'm going to say, because if you want to hear more about that, listen to the sermon I preached three or four weeks ago. We're going to move on, because there's a lot more to say in the next bit. Verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. So, uh, everyone's coming to, uh, to the meal and Jesus observes 
that they're all angling for the most important seats. So he tells this little parable about a wedding feast. Well, why a wedding feast? Well, a wedding feast is the biblical image for the relationship between God and his people. Throughout the Old Testament, it's the image that's used to describe the relationship that God has with his people. It's a marriage, a marriage in which God is always faithful and a marriage in which his people are continually unfaithful. A song of songs in the Old Testament, this erotic love poem, it's all about the relationship between God and his people. And we see it in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the new creation. Uh, The Apostle John sees this in a vision, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So Jesus deliberately, I think, picks this image of the marriage feast because the Pharisees and the experts in the law are making the assumption that they're going to be at the top table. They're going to be at the top table because they're the ones who are working really hard to keep God happy and to please God. They're the ones who are dedicated to observing the law, keeping the rules. Their assumption is they're going to be first in the queue. There's this pride and this arrogance about them. A little later on in Luke's Gospel, uh, Jesus tells another story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee says... God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. In other words, aren't I amazing? Aren't I wonderful? You're bound to want, I'm going to be first in the queue. I'm going to be at top table. The tax collector won't even look up to God. She says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says exactly the same thing that he says here. He says, uh, um, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the issue that the Pharisees and the experts in the law have. They think they're going to be at the top table. Pride is such a problem for us. We want to... You know, we want to be at the top table. That's where our human heart, our human nature wants us to get to. And it's really difficult to fight against that. Jesus says you need to humble yourselves. Well, that's easier said than done. The disciples had a real time of humility. Despite what Jesus said to them, they they never quite get it or they really struggle to get it. Back in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9, verse 33, Jesus is again travelling with his disciples and uh, they come to Capernaum and they've been, the disciples have been kind of lagging behind a little bit or they've been ahead of Jesus a bit and he, he realises they're, they're arguing. They're having this kind of lively discussion on the way. And when they get to Capernaum, Jesus says, what were you arguing about on the road? They kept quiet because on the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. They'd argued about who was the greatest. So we're always kind of thinking about this. Well, how do I make myself great? And um, Jesus takes a little child, has him stand amongst them. Children 2,000 years ago had no, no value, no status, no legal status. They were expendable. Uh, Jesus takes a child. He says, whoever welcomes one of these little children, my name welcomes me. Uh, Whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome me, but the one who 
sent me. Jesus tries to teach them a lesson about humility and they don't get it because a little while later on, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to Jesus on, you know, they kind of take him to one side and have a little chat with him. And they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, we want to be at the top table. We want to be at the top table. We want to have seats on your right and your left. And again, Jesus has to challenge them. He calls all the disciples together because the other ten are all a bit miffed. Uh, When they find out, he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Humility is not something that comes easily to us. We don't find it easy to humble ourselves. It's much easier to have hearts that are, are proud and ambitious. Now, there's nothing wrong with ambition, but there's an unhealthy ambition if If in order to get where we want to be in life, we have to walk over other people to get there. That's an unhealthy ambition. There is an ambition which is is healthy and godly. It's not wrong to want to aspire to things. But is there a humility? How do we actually do this? That's the challenge. How do we live lives of humility? Well, I think for me, as I reflect on this, the, the key to living a life of humility is understanding your identity. Understand your identity. Because so often, the reason that we, uh, we allow pride to take over is because we establish our identity by comparing ourselves to those around us. We establish identity by working out that there are people who are not as good as we are. There are people who are worse than we are. So we comfort ourselves. We think, well, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not absolutely brilliant. But I'm okay Because there are other people who are worse than I am. So we may not, you know, fight for top table, but we're certainly not taking the the lowest place. In order to, to live a life of humility, you have to understand your identity in Christ. You have to understand who you are. And it's only when you do that, that you can intentionally take the lowest place and aim for the bottom rather than the top. And we see this beautifully illustrated... In the example of Jesus, let me just um, read. I so often read from this passage because it, I, just, I love it. I love it so much. From Philippians chapter 2. This is early Christian poem that talks about what Jesus did for us. Uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. It begins with the identity of Jesus. Who was Jesus? Well, in being in very nature God... In very nature God. In another place, Paul says that Jesus was the image of the, of the invisible God. So that's who Jesus was. He was in very nature God. He knew who he was. That was his identity. And he was secure in his identity. He knew that the Father loved him. In John's Gospel, we read time and time again, Jesus says, I only do what the Father tells me. Jesus lived his life... Uh, for an audience of one. He lived his life to please his father and he didn't care about anything else. So he spent three years being rejected, ridiculed, mocked, misunderstood, opposed and eventually condemned 
And it didn't bother him. It didn't bother him what people thought because he knew who he was. He knew that in very nature he was God. And that eventually leads to him humbling himself and being obedient to death and dying on a cross. Naked, humiliated, a criminal's death, uh, mocked and ridiculed and condemned by most of those around him. It doesn't bother him because he knows who he is. He has a secure identity as the son of God. And having humbled himself, verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. It's like a staircase. It sort of goes down and then it goes back up. Jesus begins in very nature God. Humbles himself, becomes obedient to death. Therefore, God exalted him. That's how Jesus is able to humble himself. And that's how we're able to live a life of humility. When you you realise, well, actually, my father loves me. God loves me. He loves me so desperately, so passionately, so overwhelmingly... Actually, that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what other people think about me. I don't need to establish my identity by walking over other people. I don't need to impress other people. It doesn't matter whether other people think well of me or not. Am I living a life that pleases my father who loves me so much? And when you know that, well, everything else pales into insignificance. Then you can can give it up and take the lowest seat at the table because that's enough. How hard is that to do? How hard is it to live totally secure in our identity in God? It's a a journey that I'm still on. Um, uh, Sometimes, sometimes God humbles us if we don't humble ourselves. Um, Back in, way back in in Deuteronomy, uh, where Moses is uh, kind of giving his last sort of will and testament to the people of God. And uh, talking to them about the things that God has done for them. And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, Moses says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Uh, in the end, humility is really important because uh, we either get there ourselves or the Lord will get us there. One way or another, uh, we will bow our knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes the Lord humbles us. I remember um, about 15 years ago, the Lord uh, humbling me in order to teach me uh, to have my identity in him. About 15 years ago, in a former life, uh, I was the king of Ardingly. Would you believe? I was the king of Ardingly. I was the rector. I was the ruler of Ardingly. That, that was my title. And the fact that I had that, that title made me think that my life was significant. It made me think that I was, you know, I must be somebody. I must be important because I'm the rector. In fact, I was really miffed. In uh, 2002, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh came to the South of England show. And I discovered afterwards that some of the kind of dignitaries in the village had had this sort of private little soiree with the Queen and, and the Duke of Edinburgh. 
And I wasn't blooming invited. The, the chair of the parish council was there and some other people. I thought, she's the queen of Great Britain. I'm the king of Ardingly. Is there not some king, queen? Should we? I was really miffed. But, but, but that, was, that was with so much part of my identity. It was, it kind of, it was, I thought, because I had such, low, such a low opinion of myself and such a low image, I thought, well, well, actually, people will think I'm something because I've got a title. And in the end, God kind of had enough. And uh, as you say, if you, don't, if you don't humble yourselves, God in his love, he'll do it for you. And uh, way better to be humbled this side of eternity than on the day of judgment when it's too late. And he humbled me, he took it away. He took away the, the, the two things that I had my identity wrapped up in, which were uh, my title and my relationship with my wife. Uh, that was where my identity was rooted and established. And God called time in the end. He said, no, you need to have an identity that is in me and in me alone. Because if it isn't, you're just going to keep falling flat on your face. If it isn't, you're just going to live a life dependent on what other people think of you. And not everyone is going to like you all the time. And when they don't like you, you can't let it crush you. Because your identity's got to be in me. It's a very painful lesson. And I'm still not quite there. But I'm a lot further than I was 15 years ago. But that's how God loves us. That's what he wants us to know. That's the only thing that matters. He loves us. He loves us. We've sung about it this morning. He sent Jesus to die for us on the cross. He loves us. He's prepared a place for us in eternity. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's the most important thing. And when we get our heads and our hearts around that, well, then we can humble ourselves. Then we can humble ourselves. Then we can take the lowest place. And it doesn't matter that people think, might look at, oh, oh, oh what's he doing down there? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The Lord loves us. And then the Lord will raise us up in time. So, last little bit. How are we doing? We're all right. Uh, everyone who humbles themselves will be humble. Whoever humbles himself will be, will be exalted. And it might not be in this life. It might not be till eternity. It doesn't matter. The Lord loves us. Last little bit, uh, which is really significant as well. Verse 12. Jesus said to his host... When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they might invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind and you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Uh, some of you will remember the movie. Um, I was shocked to discover quite how long ago it came out. Um, Gladiator with um, Russell Crowe. Sometimes you think, oh, it was only like a couple of years ago. And then you discover it was like 20 years ago. <laughs> Crumbs. But anyway, there's a lovely line at the beginning of the, right towards the beginning of the film, where Russell Crowe says, Roman Gladiator is a Roman um, legionnaire. is about to lead his army into, into battle. And as he's preparing his troops... He says to them, what we do in this life has echoes in eternity. What we do in this life has echoes in eternity. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's saying, remember, what you do in this life 
has echoes in eternity. So don't invest all that you are and all that you have in order to gain a reward in this life. Use what you have, your time, your talents, your treasure, to invest in eternity. What you do in this life has an echo in eternity. So be mindful of that. Jesus is not saying, don't invite your friends and family round for dinner. That's not what he's saying. He's making a point for emphasis. He's, it's like when he says, anyone who doesn't hate their uh, you know, mother and father, brother or sister can't love me. He's not saying you've got to hate your family. He's making a point for emphasis. It's the same thing here. He's not saying don't invite your friends. He's just saying if you do that, chances are you're going to get your reward fairly soon. Because they're going to invite you back. Because that's what we do. He's saying, no, have a mind to, to invest, to spend yourself, to spend your life, your time, your talents, your treasure, doing something for which you probably won't get a reward. So we need to think about, well, how am I doing that? How am I doing that in my, in my life? What am I doing? I was thinking this morning about people like um, Eve Rose at Hope House Haiti. She has given her life to people who can't repay her. Or Paul Young, Paul will be here in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, Paul Young with Off the Fence, over 20 years spending himself on behalf of people who can't, you know, who can't repay. So the point is, we need to make sure that that's part of what we're doing in whatever way we can. You know, we can't all be Eve Rose. We can't all be Paul Young. We can't all found a huge ministry. But we've all got time. We've all got talents. We've all got treasure. We need to make sure that some of that is invested with an eye on... Uh, eternity that we're not doing it just to get a reward in this life but we understand as we've seen so many times in Luke's gospel that we sit lightly to the things of this world because this isn't our home we're already living in eternity through the Lord Jesus Christ so let's already be living for that so so much to um, I probably should have done three sermons to be fair but there we go (laughs) <laughs> You've got three and one. But uh, just so, it's just so, I just find it so lovely that the Lord Jesus is about life. And the Sabbath is about life. Jesus said, I've come to bring you life in all its fullness. Our Sabbath rest is where we, it's like having a bath in the fullness of life. That's what it should be. Is your Sabbath, your one day a week, does it feel like bathing in the fullness of life? If it doesn't, well, do something about your Sabbath. So it does like having a bath in the fullness of life. Uh, aim for the bottom. Humility. Understand how much God loves you. Once you've got your identity in him, only then can you live in humility. And keep an eye on eternity. What we do in this life has echoes in eternity. So let's, let's pray. Let's pray and just take some time in our own hearts, to respond. What's respond? When we, uh, the lovely thing about reading God's word is that we read it with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit loves to put his finger on certain things that will challenge us and encourage us. So Holy Spirit, uh, what do you want to put your finger on this morning? It'll be different for each one of us.
what do you want to put your finger on? 